where we start our new series. So you, if you're a visitor, you've came at just the right time. We are launching into the book of Acts. I'm going to start with a question. Let's say that there was a reporter, and the reporter was standing outside the doors of the church, and as you entered into the church, they asked you this question. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What would your answer be? I want you to contemplate that as we continue through the sermon. And, and it reminds me a little bit, sometimes I drive by construction workers, and I wonder, what are they doing? What are, like, this, you got one guy with a sign flipping it back and forth. That has to be the best job on a construction site. Uh, and I wonder, like, what does he think he's doing? And so imagine that you were that reporter, and you went to that construction site, and you asked the first guy, what are you doing here? His response to you is, well, I'm repairing the road uh, that I was assigned. This is my task. Maybe you ask the second guy, and you say, he might say, I'm just working my nine to five. I'm waiting to clock out so that, well, in Arizona, we work from like, you know, three in the morning when it gets light to, you know, noon. But anyways, he's working nine to five. He's just trying to knock, trying to get a paycheck. You ask the second one, he says, oh, I'm just supporting my family. And you ask another one, and he might say, I'm making this road better so that hardworking Americans can get to their work and they don't have to pay extra bills on, um, on road-related accidents on their vehicles. And as you listen to each one, they each have a vision for what they are doing, don't they? They each have a particular slant on their activity. I would say that one of those men has a greater understanding of his task. Right? He's more than just filling in potholes. He's more than just punching a nine to five. He's more than just waiting for the foreman uh, to, to look away so he can take a break, right? We have this purpose. Acts gives us a vision of what God is doing, and God the Father is building his church on the cornerstone of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's using you for that task. And that's what Acts tells us. Tells us about new beginnings or um, or in the beginning of the church. And so we have a mission to be witnesses, which means that we are more than passive observers. And let's go ahead and pray before I get too carried away with our sermon. Father, we, we ask, we come humbly before you, grateful that we can approach the throne of grace because of your dear son. Lord, we thank you that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to to pray, and even if our prayers are more like groans, you intercede and interpret uh, through your Spirit. Father, I ask for blessings on this coming school year for all the teachers and all the students as they begin this next cycle of their lives. Uh, Father, we know that many have been in school, and we pray for them as well. Lord, we lift up Awana, the Awana program. Father, it's such a, a necessary aspect of our church and a ministry to our young ones as they get grounded in the Word through memorization, and have a, a greater desire to know you uh, through your word. Father, we ask for the, the teachers that they would have one mind, they would be unified in the task of, of lifting your name on high. Lord, we, we pray for our country. Uh, it desperately needs your intervention, and we know that you are in control, that not one thing happens apart from your will, uh, Father, but we are definitely feeling the pressure. And so we ask for your care for us. Lord, as we approach this text, Father, the book of Acts should not be treated so lightly. 
And so, Father, I pray for me that I would be able to expound your word and drive home the points that you would have us hear. Lord, I pray for the, the congregation this morning that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see that any distractions from the, from the time before, the week that they've just had, that they would be put aside and they would be able to focus in on your word and help them to, to listen profitably, Father. May this be a profitable experience, an edifying uh, experience for our congregation. They would grow in the knowledge of you and be empowered by the Spirit. And we ask these things in, in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. So when you read the book of Acts, you hear a lot of interesting things, don't you? Uh, you hear some pretty phenomenal miracles. It's, it's kind of like um, signs and wonders are on every page. And as you do that, you could get distracted from what is really and truly going on. And so Acts has really been just a joy for me to be studying over the last few months as I prepare for this series um, and I think you're going to have a lot. So we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. It's not really a controversy. Luke, this is part two of Luke's writing. Luke wrote the book of Luke, right? He wrote the book of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And in fact, we even see how he talks about this guy named Theophilus, and we'll talk a little bit about him. But ultimately, Luke is writing part two of the story of Jesus, and this is Really, the mission of the church, or church, um, Christ using the Spirit of Christ in the church uh, in the book of Acts. And so, I want you to be aware of a few things as we read the book of Acts. Some important principles of interpretation. And I know this sounds pretty heady, but I really think that you need to understand this. So, number one, I want you to note the transitional nature of Acts. Acts is a time of transition. There are new things happening. There are exciting things happening. There are fresh things happening. But it is also a transitional period, which means that everything that happens in Acts does not necessarily mean that it will happen right now. Okay? So just be aware of that. We want to make sure we are wise to this. I'm telling you this because I don't want anyone to bring any snakes in here and have us trying to wrestle with them, okay? We're not doing that. We don't need to be like Paul, getting bit by poisonous snakes and then hoping that we don't die, okay? The second thing is don't jump to conclusions. You may see something in the book of Acts and get excited about it and say, I'm going to go and run into a pile of snakes, all right? Let's not jump to conclusions just yet. Let's understand the purpose of what happened, okay? Uh, third is you need to ask some questions of the text. You want to ask, is this event extraordinary? Right? We usually say extraordinary. I want to say extraordinary. The reason Acts is so powerful is because there's so many extraordinary events. So in the normal course of life, extraordinary things are happening in the book of Acts. So ask that. Is this extraordinary or is this normal? Fourth, ask this question. Is it prescriptive? Or descriptive? Is this a prescription, like a doctor would write you a prescription, or is it describing something? Right? When you read the Old Testament and you see the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness, you ask the question, is God saying that I too must grumble in the wilderness? Or is it describing what they did? Okay? So when you see the apostles healing folks, 
you want to ask the question, is this prescribing that I too must go and find the nearest beggar and say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Right? Is that what it's saying? Or is it describing what, G what, what the apostles were doing? That's what we want to ask these questions as we approach the book of Acts. And I think that's going to keep you and me from many errors. Because sometimes I think we read the book of Acts as all prescription, or we, let, we, we prescribe what we like out of the book of Acts, instead of realizing that some of it is also history of the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit with the church. So we are building the church through witnessing about what Christ has done. If you look at, at Luke 24, 44, we have this description of what uh, Luke gets to in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to turn there briefly. And we're actually going to be jumping around a little bit more than I normally do. So get your fingers ready. But Luke 24, unless you have an iPad, then you can just click on the thing. Luke 24, verse 44. So Jesus ate this broiled fish because they were all surprised at the risen Lord. And then he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. And that's what we're going to see in Acts, a greater, greater understanding of the Scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for, for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. So Luke 24 sets up Acts 1 really all of Acts. So, one of the things that you need to be aware of is that you are all witnesses to Christ. The question is, what kind of witness are you? Which construction worker are you? Are you coming to church on Sunday just to fill in a, a good a star box, right? If I do enough Sundays, I'll get a star, and at the end, God will reward me. Are you coming to church because you think, it makes you more special than someone else. Maybe you're just bored. It's lonely at home, so you just want to come to church and hear some interesting things. Right, so what kind of witness are you? How are you witnessing to this reality, the risen Christ? Witnessing involves all of the one another in Scripture. Loving, admonishing one another, correcting one another, teaching one another, caring for one another, and so much more, which is what we're going to see in the book of Acts. So the theme statement, if you will, is that God has called us to witness. He has given us the message, the means, and the motivation. If you have a bulletin on the back, you have those points laid out for you. So let's go ahead and look at, what, at the book of Acts. And we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I wrote the first narrative. So right there, we already know. Luke wrote the first narrative. Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We just saw that in 
uh, chapter or 24, uh, Luke 24, 44. After he had suffered, he also presented himself to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has sent set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And so the first part of this passage, we see the message of the witnesses. What are the apostles supposed to share? And then consequently, what are we supposed to share? Luke launches his letter in a very formal Greek way. You know, we have, you know, dear John, da 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 Luke does the same thing in a, in a Greek sense. And so he launches it with a very um, formal Greek writing. He addresses a person called Theophilus. Right? And if you break that word down, it's lover of God or, or one who loves God. And so is it a person that he's writing to or a group of people represented by the name? Uh, the reality is we don't necessarily know. Some have speculated that Theophilus was a... Uh, maybe his producer um, or a professional benefactor, the guy that would publish his, his writing, would publish the book of Acts for him. I tend to lean more towards the fact that I think Theophilus is this um, standing in for those who love God. So, you know, dearly beloved is kind of how we, we say that. So if you are a lover of God, listen to this story. So in the first narrative, he talks about this. And the message that he has, has commissioned his apostles, the witnesses, us as his disciples, to speak is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So first we see his life. Look at verses 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That encompasses his life. So what are you supposed to be sharing? Well, the life of Jesus, everything that he taught and was. In Luke 24, Jesus is telling the disciples, he says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all of scripture. So when you look at the book of Esther and you look at the book of books in the Old Testament, they all testify to Jesus. Let's not have a very heavily used New Testament and an Old Testament that's really pristine, right? Because the, all of Scripture is God-breathed. In Matthew 28, Jesus is clear. We call it the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? So, to be a disciple means to teach the life of Jesus. And we as the church are to steward Jesus' words and his teachings. So in order to be a witness of Jesus, we must all know what he taught. So there's a, a heavy activity that you are called to do. You need to know what he taught. In fact, if you were to go back to that story about the, the construction worker, construction workers kind of have to know what they're doing, right? If he's filling a hole, if he's using, I don't know, gunpowder, that's probably a problem, right? He needs to be using the asphalt that he has given. He needs to know his task. So we must know what we believe. Does that mean we know everything about the life and teachings of Jesus? It's going to take a lifetime to really gather just the barely enough, right? But we are to know the essentials. We must know what we believe. And we must grow in not only the knowledge intellectually, but the experience. So if someone were to ask you, what are you doing here? First, you need to be able to give them the message, which involves the life of Jesus. But not only that, in verse 3, excuse me, let's go to verse 2. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. By giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, it means that he has opened their mind and enabled them to understand. That's what 24, Luke 24, verse 44 is, is saying, that he reveals to them, he opened their mind through the Spirit so they could understand. And to the apostles he had chosen. And then verse 3, the second part of the message, which is the death of Jesus. After he had suffered... That word for suffer, you know, we sometimes talk about the passion of the Christ. It's that Greek word, but it, it means suffer, the suffering of Jesus. The message of the cross is central to understanding Jesus. Without the message of the cross, without the cross of Christ, you have no salvation. Without Jesus' suffering, we don't have any fulfillment of prophecy. We do not have atonement for our sins without the cross. Matthew 16, 21 from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Did you catch that? It was necessary. Part of our message is the death of Jesus Christ, the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was hard for the disciples to gather this information, wasn't it? It was hard for them to take. It was a, a hard pill to swallow. Because when they read the Torah and they read the writings of the Jewish uh, commentaries, they would recognize that the Messiah was coming to establish a kingdom, a kingdom for Israel. And they had a conquering king in mind, not a suffering king. Yet, 400 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied this from Isaiah 53, 3-5. through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion 
crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Isaiah couldn't have been more clear. This Messiah must suffer, and he must suffer greatly. The message we are to be witnesses of is not only the life of Jesus, right? We can't just say Jesus was a good teacher. We can't just say, oh, he lived a good life. We can't just say, oh, he was a nice guy. Because technically he would be a lunatic by our standards, if he wasn't the son of God. So Jesus couldn't, we can't just do that, but we also have to talk about his death. And not only his death, but also the resurrection. Someone has said Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection reality. So the second part of verse 3, so after he had suffered, which is the first part, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke in verse 3 is really the only one that tells us that it was a 40-day period. Uh, That's the only place we see that after Jesus' death, he spent 40 days showing himself to different people, to the disciples, and we have lots of those stories in the Gospels. And it says he did it with many convincing proofs, right? These These were realities, He was more real to them than anything else. He sat and ate food with them. He was not a ghost, right? We have a uh, the act of actually touching him, um, doubted hands into Jesus's side. He puts his hands into Jesus's uh, nail wounds and actually feels the scars or the scabs, right? We have an actual touching of Jesus, experiencing beyond just our eyes. So. We also bear witness of these things. It doesn't mean we know everything, but at a minimum, we bear witness to this. And I like how First Peter says it. Verse 1, 8 through 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So even though we did not put our hands in Jesus' side, even though we ourselves do not see him bodily resurrected, we believe in him and believe that this reality is true. This is a true thing. We are actually heart witnesses instead of eyewitnesses uh, because Christ has done this thing in our heart, enabling us to believe. He's done this miracle based on the evidence of the eyewitnesses. Right, this is not a faith where we just imagine something. This is based on the evidence of eyewitnesses who wrote about this story. As you hear this message, you may be thinking, I don't know enough. Well, first off, welcome to the club. Right? I don't know enough. You're right. We just don't know enough. But we know this, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, a sinless life life, that he died a death of imputation. Somebody recently said something about being a w, a, a double imputee. Impution, right, means that my sin was imputed to Christ, which means Christ took my sin on himself, and then Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. A double imputee. I just thought that was really funny, really clever, right? And we are imputed 
by His death, He exchanged His righteousness for our sins. The sins that you do over and over and over again are placed upon the Christ. And His righteousness is placed on us if we know Him. But not only that, on the third day, God the Father raised Him from the grave. And then Jesus went around and showed Himself to the disciples and many others with convincing proofs. They were convinced of this reality. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead three days later? And that it was many eyewitnesses that saw this reality. So we are called to be part of this spiritual building project. The life, the death, the resurrection is our message that we carry. The spiritual building project is the church. So if someone asks you, what are you building you can answer like this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you hear what we're called to do? We are being built as living stones. Every believer is a stone in the building project that God has. And as being a stone means that we're going to be chipped up a little bit. That we're going to be shaped and formed to be placed in the proper place in the house of God. In verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the message that you tell the reporter when they ask you, what are you building here? What are you doing here? Why are you coming to this place? But well, we don't do this on our own strength, do we? We can't build ourselves. God gives the means, or another way to say that, God gives the ability. So verses 4 through 8 give us the means of the witness. How are we to witness? So Luke continues to describe Jesus' final scene with his disciples. And he explains how they will be able to fulfill this commission. Because he said, you will be my witnesses. And he says it's going to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he had said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. What Jesus is doing is he is comparing something physical to something spiritual. He said, you were baptized with water in John's baptism, but this Holy Spirit baptism is what is going to enable you to do the church, to be the church. The Holy Spirit outpouring that will come upon the disciples is what they are to wait for. The Holy Spirit transforms and empowers God's people. Like I said, if you are a stone in God's building project, you've got to be able to fit. And what God is doing through your trials, through the hardships that you're experiencing, is making you more like Jesus, making you better fit to be part of this house. And not only that, but it empowers God's people. So it transforms your character and then empowers to fulfill the purpose. This reminds me of Ezekiel 36. 
where it talks about a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you, and listen to this, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What does that sound like? All that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is a big deal. In order to be a witness, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to be a witness, you must have the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine trying to build God's house in your own power? It would be a mess without the blueprints. So Paul also emphasizes this as he goes forward. He talks about our need to walk by the Spirit. If you just want a, a summary statement of Paul's theology, look at Romans 8. But the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is sometimes seen in dramatic ways. When we look in the book of Acts, we see some very dramatic examples. But most of the time, Scripture portrays the Spirit as empowering God's people to live their daily lives in a new way that is honoring to Christ. That's what this language of a new heart is all about. To live your daily lives. Ephesians is a good handbook to see this in action. If you ever want to just have a handbook for Christian living, the book of Ephesians is very clear on this. I would, th I would say that the book of Acts could probably, probably be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, since that He is what drives the mission forward. It is the Holy Spirit that is building the church. It is the Spirit of Christ in His people that is building this church. And the Holy Spirit often comes after a time of prayer. So the promise is what empowers the mission, what enable us, enables us to be witnesses. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks, but Acts chapter 2, 38 through 39, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, empowers the people. It was promised in the Old Testament. I don't have a time, a time to, to go into all that is the Holy Spirit today, but it was a promise that we see in the Old Testament. The prophets spoke about the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people at the time of their restoration, which is the last days. Look at Isaiah 44, 3. Or I, I'm going to read it to you. How about that? Because we're running out of time. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and the streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on forever, says the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on male and female slaves in those days. Do you see the connection here? That in the time of restoration, the Lord is pouring out his 
Holy Spirit. And so it's not any wonder that the disciples are going to ask this question that's going to happen next. They were confused about the nature of the kingdom. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 7. So verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of, to Israel at this time? That's a reasonable question. All the Holy Spirit language about being poured out says, in times, which means the kingdom is come, and therefore we are now empowered to do this action. It's a reasonable question, but what is the question, what, what is the answer that Jesus gives? He says, you don't get the kingdom realities. You don't, you don't understand. In verse 7, he says to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has sent you by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The grand hope that the Jews were holding on to was a restoration, a restoration of the physical Israel. Right? They wanted the Romans to get crushed. They wanted the Messiah to come and lead them to victory. They wanted Abram's tanks and Apache helicopters to fight against the Romans. They wanted the equipment. Right? They wanted Patriot missile systems. They wanted everything to destroy their enemies. They wanted a physical kingdom. The disciples, of course, being catechized their whole lives into this idea, thought the same thing. They want to know, would the Roman oppression be immediately stamped out? Lord, is it, is it time for you to destroy the oppressor? But that Jesus answers them, doesn't he? So it's not for you to know. He says, Jesus, uh, God has set by his own power and authority the time. Which is a, a, a thing of hope for us, because God has set the time. Sometimes I think we like to speculate, just like the disciples. I think we've seen all sorts of people make predictions. You know, on this day, the Lord is going to return, and then he doesn't come. If someone makes a prediction like that, they are a false teacher, and they should never be allowed to hold any teaching position in the church ever again. Uh, in fact, we should stone them. Okay, that's just a hot take. If Jesus didn't tell the disciples, I don't think we need to pry into it. I don't think we need to sit here and try to do math equations to try to figure out the Lord's return. Uh, I don't think we need to add up all the chapters and verses, numbers, even though that was a later edition. Uh, we don't have to do that and then try to figure out on September 6th, this is when it's going to happen. right? We don't have to do that because we have a mission to do. The disciples don't have time to think about the physical kingdom. They have a spiritual reality that they must be pursuing. And so we cannot be distracted. I like how Spurgeon says it. He says it's not proper, it's not profitable, and it's not possible for us to know the day that this happens. The power from the Holy Spirit is what enables them to be witnesses. Verse 8 says, But the Spirit... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Which is exactly what Jesus declares. You are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And there's three categories mentioned. It's kind of outlining the book of Acts. Remember, this is still part of the prologue. So Luke is a masterful storyteller and writer. And as he writes this, he actually tells us the outline for the book of Acts. So first you see Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Acts. 
Then you see Judea and Samaria, which is one province. In, the Greek makes it really clear, but this is one thing, Judea and Samaria. Uh, this is what uh, Pilate was in, was in charge of. And that's chapters 6 through 12. And then the ends of the earth, right? The Gentile nations. And that's 13 through 28 of the book of Acts. And so we have our outline. Uh, this this um, season of Acts, we're only going to probably make it to the end of Judea and Samaria, to chapter 12. So don't be alarmed when we don't finish Acts this year. Uh, we will continue to keep picking it up as we go. So where does the power of building the church come from? Programs? Money? Just give more money? A flashy pastor with a cool beard? Uh, a sweet PowerPoint presentation that we can read all the words on? Better music? More eloquent songs? Or maybe we just do better work together. Maybe we have better programs. The disciples are commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. To wait. Don't, he said, don't get running around trying to do all this work yet. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of Christ is spiritual first, and what motivates it is spiritual. And so if we look to outward means to grow the church, we will lose the whole thing. If my goal is to offer you a brand new, pick, brand new pickup truck for every day, we'll have a raffle. and You'll get a raffle ticket every time you show up to church. Man, that will grow the church, won't it? You'll have a lot of people showing up waiting for that new F-150 Raptor, right? What have I done? I have confused a crowd with a congregation. And that's what Acts is teaching us here, is that the Holy Spirit is the only thing that gives life. It's the only thing that gives us usefulness. And it's the only thing that gives us success in ministry. And I think we as Christians can lose sight of the reality that a crowd is not a congregation. Lots of people gathering does not make a church. We as witnesses are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness. The supernatural power given by the Holy Spirit is not flashy, look at me, but it's a divine finger pointing to Jesus. The, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus Christ, not to point to the messenger. And that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our sins. He illuminates our mind to be able to understand His inspired Word. Why would the Lord go through all this time to inspire the written Word if we were just going to abandon it at some point? Anyways, getting off of my soapbox. We see the most miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit in areas that need divine confirmation of the Gospel. When you read the book of Acts, it's usually in... Areas that need divine power to confirm the message that this is an act of God. And we see that uh, clearly. But no less amazing is the life changes that the Holy Spirit does in each of us. It is truly amazing to see someone who is a drunk come to Jesus Christ and turn away from drunkenness, from alcohol, from drugs, from, from what have you. That is the miracle. That you go from being a self-centered, selfish person to an other-centered, God-focused person. That's the miracle that we see. That's the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. He says, desire the, the real gift, which is love. 
The ability to love someone other than your selfish self. He doesn't say it that way. That's my paraphrase. The most important thing about this is that God is with us. The, the, the people here that we have, the witnesses, and, and the Greek term is, is martyr, is the word they use. And I don't want to make you think that what we call martyr is what is being referenced here because it's not. Uh, it's just another word for someone who bears testimony. And then we've later turned it into a word that represents those who die for the faith. But God knows, Jesus knows, that these disciples are going to experience major hardships. All the disciples essentially were killed by various means, horrific ways. And then the early Christians were tortured by the Romans. And we see continuing persecution even to this day. What sustains you in times of trial? It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit with you, that Jesus Christ is with you in trials and prisons and in temptations. We are not going to go all the way to the motivation of the witness today because I have become long-winded in this part. So we'll save that for another week. But I want to go back to our construction workers very briefly. They're asked the question, what are you doing here? What is their motivation? What has empowered them to do the things that they do? We as believers have to understand what our motivation is. And that's what next week we will talk about. What motivates you to be a joyful believer of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place? So God has called us to witness. He has given us the message, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that Jesus taught, which includes the entire Old Testament. So I, I hate to, to, to break something to you. But those words in red in your Bibles are no more inspired than the rest of the Old and New Testament. So if someone says to you, well, Jesus never talked about dot, 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 you can say, well, who inspired the, the Scriptures? God. Is Jesus God? That's right. So anyways, side note. So Christian, the question is not if you will be a witness. That's, the, that's not the question. It's not will you be a witness. But what kind of witness are you going to be? Are you just trying to punch a time clock? Are you just trying to show up to church because it's a good thing to do and it makes you feel good for the week? Or are you truly witnessing to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only in your own life, but in those around you? Are you going to tell that reporter that asks you as you leave this place, what are you doing here? Will you give them the message? Empowered by that motivation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the, having the ability to speak. That's the question for you. If you're not a believer in here and you do not know Jesus, you need to get to know him. Because you are not going to be able to endure the trials and the suffering in your life without his empowerment. You will be much more miserable and it ultimately leads to destruction. And you don't want that. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. And, and if you are a believer, or if not a believer in this room and you want to talk, please pull me aside and we'll talk. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You could be in your 80s and 90s, but if you do not know Jesus, and I don't mean an intellectual knowledge, but an actual experiential knowledge of Jesus, don't be embarrassed. Don't let your embarrassment keep you from getting to know the living God 
and to be empowered by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, what a powerful book the book of Acts is. Lord, we thank you that you have given us information about the early church, that you have shown us uh, who the Holy Spirit is, that we can begin to grapple with our task as a church. Are we here to, to make a crowd and to entertain the goats, or are, are we to be the, the flock of, of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we to gather here to be fed by you and then to share that good news with those around us? Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, that maybe has been punching a time clock or just waiting for the four men to, to take a look away so that they can escape. Father, I pray that you would convict their hearts uh, through the Spirit, that you would uh, cause them to seek to know you. Father, we, we ask these things in, in the beautiful name of Christ, and we thank you for your word that is truth and is powerful. Father, we ask these things in, in, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen.